At The Shape of the World, we are interested in cities, nature, and people. And no individual embodies that particular matrix of interests more completely than today's guest. A principal architect at the firm of Skidmore, Owings & Merrill, Phil Inquist has had a first row center seat, both to study changes to American cities and to create changes. I mean this as physical change on the ground, by the water, in the sky. Phil thinks and he builds. Phil Enquist is just a brilliant guy. He's the most talented planner I've ever worked with. That's Jerry Edelman, another guest on The Shape of the World this season, who's had the chance to work with Phil on urban planning projects. Jerry kind of couldn't contain his enthusiasm when I mentioned Phil was also going to be on the show. He's creative, innovative, and he always tries to understand the community in which he's working, knowing that those assets, that those traditions, that that ecology is what any meaningful plan for the future should be based on. He's worked all over the world at all scales. His work in Asia in particular is extraordinary, but really throughout the United States and other parts of the world. Phil is kind of a superstar. Since he's famous, you can learn about him from Google. Or you could ask somebody you happen to know who pays attention to architecture. But what we like to get into at The Shape of the World isn't so much the obvious. We like to learn the story of how people get to where, in the case of scientists, they make the discoveries that they make. Or in the case of someone like Phil, how he became someone who could see the world the way he sees it and then position himself where he could do something about it. Welcome to The Shape of the World. I'm Jill Riddell. My name is Phil Enquist. I'm a consulting partner with Skidmore Owings & Merrill. I'm an urban planner and architect. That firm where Phil spent his career, Skidmore Owings & Merrill, is one of the largest architectural and engineering firms in the world. They're known for very high-density, high-rise structures. The John Hancock Building and Sears Tower are two of their better-known buildings. Those are both in Chicago. In Chicago. Burj Khalifa in Dubai, the tallest building in the world, is by Skidmore Owings & Merrill. Many buildings in the heart of cities around the world. Skidmore Owings & Merrill has always been an urban core kind of architecture firm. You have spent a part of your career working for this very urban architectural firm that builds skyscrapers. And yet I know that you have an interest in nature and an interest in incorporating nature into cities. So how did you find your way to Skidmore? And did it strike you right away as a perfect fit? Or did that come to you gradually? No, I I didn't see it as a perfect fit at all, and I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure they didn't either. I was very fortunate to have an architectural education at USC in Los Angeles where there were parallel planning courses in the environment and really in the relationship between the built environment and the natural environment. At the time that I was a student in architecture, there were very few programs in the country that were interested in this. 
There were professors there like Mel Branch, who was a leading American planner who taught this sort of balance between nature and cities. And then right after I graduated, I was lucky enough to work with Wallace McCarg Roberts and Todd. And Ian McCarg, who had just recently retired from that firm, had left his mark, and he has written the book, Designed with Nature. And everybody that I worked with at that firm, their careers were guided by his philosophy. What did that look like in Southern California? What form did it take to have buildings and nature together? Mel Branch took us down to Irvine. It's a a new city from the 1960s, 1970s, but it integrated coastal areas. It integrated active agricultural areas. It left uh, lowlands and stream beds open and natural, soft bottom. It even though is, I think, viewed today as a rather suburban community, it actually had an underpinning of natural systems. They took the time to understand how water flowed, and they took the time to understand what areas they wanted to keep open and free from development. So at the time, was it more typical to channelize streams and layer them with concrete and uh, or move them into culverts underground? Or what was more common practice if you were planning a city at that time? Look at the Los Angeles River, 30-some-odd miles of concrete channels that take water and force it out into the ocean at you know remarkable speeds. They don't catch any of that water, and they don't return any of that water to the aquifer. And so to see a softer engineering, it back then it was rare. Today it's much more common. And I think people understand the value of getting water back to the aquifers or using permeable surfaces to filter toxins out of water. So a city of softer material is certainly a better way to go. So at the time, did it just strike planners as lazy not to have channelized those streams? Did they did they get what was going on, or did it just seem to them as though it looked uncared for, those open waterways that were more <laughs> natural? I mean, this was an era when people would go out to their front yards and paint the trunks of their shade trees white, visually demonstrating in their own little patch of earth control over nature, making things look tidy, was very in. The aesthetic of what's appropriate in a city is radically changing. When we were involved in Chicago with planning Millennium Park and then seeing the Lurie Garden be developed with all the natural plantings and grasses, it seemed like that was an acceptable aesthetic, but you had to sort of trim that with deep hedges in a way that made it look like it was contained. The city parks department has introduced more and more native vegetation and oak savannas and wetland planting. I think people are used to now a different aesthetic, a more natural aesthetic than they were even 15, 20 years ago. 
I moved here in the 1980s, and all of the lagoons and the parks had mowed grass right down to the edge, which meant that basically they had big mudslides around the edge of the lagoons. There was no way to get close to the water. Bushes were very pruned. Things had a very harsh look to them at the time. I just walked the south lagoon at Lincoln Park yesterday. Isn't that the most beautiful oasis Beautiful. And after this intense winter, the landscape is devastated. I mean, it's it's laying down on its side and it looks like it's been really beaten up. And yet I know with this rapidly changing weather, it'll be just a couple of weeks when you will see new life and we'll see a whole new generation of wetland plants show up. By studying architecture in the 1970s and moving to Chicago in the 1990s, Phil Inquist helped make this changing aesthetic possible on a grand scale. Something about having these ideas come out of Skidmore, the builder of skyscrapers, the heft of its reputation as a hard-nosed architectural firm, heavy on engineering, capable of conceiving ways to erect gigantic structures from steel and concrete, that made Phil and the rest of the firm's advocacy for cities to pay attention to nature gain wider acceptance. What were your early experiences of nature? My father was a chemical engineer, but he loved nature, and he really opposed the sort of suburban aesthetics of the mowed lawn. And the short amount of time we lived in a Los Angeles suburb, he continued to argue that taller grass had a healthier root system. So he would not mow his lawns and the neighbors would come over and mow his lawn because it was violating the aesthetics. So he moved us to the Mojave Desert and we lived there with no lawns, just really native chaparral and the native ground covers. And that's where I was exposed for the first time to the beauty of natural landscapes and that you can live with the landscapes of, in that case, Joshua trees and juniper bushes and roadrunners and quail, and, and it was wonderful. That must have been quite a contrast. I had not experienced that living in a suburb of Los Angeles. So you worked in California and then moved to Chicago as an adult with your wife and children. When was that, and what did you come to Chicago to do? I came to Chicago in 19... 19- 95, at the request of the firm, Skidmore, Owings and Merrill had been hired to redesign State Street. And if you remember, State Street was a transit mall, and it had buses that went down the street, but it had no other vehicles that could go down the street. And State Street is an iconic street in Chicago, north-south running major thoroughfare right through the heart of downtown. The traditional main street of Chicago. It was also designed by Graham Anderson, Propes and White as the first coordinated electric light street in America. Electric so, stoplights, you mean? No, or uh, street electric, lights. Oh, the street uh, lights. The okay. illumination of the street. We worked very closely with Mayor Daly and the State Street Council and just a delightful group of people on getting people back to State Street. And now you look at that street And I do feel that we had some impact because the foot traffic on State Street today is remarkable. 
Can you do some comparisons of our American cities with some of the other cities you've worked on internationally? It's interesting to do that. They're very different conditions. But I think one way of looking at this is America has been urbanized for a long time. North America, South America has been predominantly 70, 75% urban for many decades. So we're countries of city builders. China, for example, is far less urban even today. The rapid urbanization is one of the distinguishing characteristics between an American city and a Chinese city. We have built our cities relatively slowly over many decades. Many of our greatest cities are 200 years old. In China, we see some very old cities, but we see rapid recent urbanization and just tremendous growth on a scale that we could not compare here in the United States. Is it possible to save patches of nature and parks and open spaces under those pressing human conditions? There is a culture of nature in China. Mountains tend to be very well respected and rivers tend to be respected, but we saw a great sort of erosion of water quality. Almost every river seemed to be polluted. And it's only been recently, maybe the last six or seven years, that there's been a great movement to restore and rebuild wetlands, to restore river edges, to respect the way water flows through these river valleys. And I think in general, the nation of China has realized that they've polluted their water system pretty much across the country. And now they have openly committed, the national government has committed to restoration of these systems. And is that supported by the people that live there? Are they calling for cleaner water, more open space? Yes, definitely. Air quality and water quality are the two things that people are really demanding get improved. Can you give us some examples of excellence in embracing and incorporating nature as part of the urban fabric? I think Daniel Burnham's plan of Chicago that took the 32 miles of Chicago's lakefront and declared that public open space, continuous public open space, has probably proven to be one of the greatest gifts of any city in the United States. I, I don't know of any other city that has such a tremendous resource as Chicago's lakefront. At a bigger scale, I think the California Coastal Commission uh, working to protect the full coast of the state from urbanization and keeping that free from development, I think was also a remarkable addition to the United States. The formation of national parks is uh, certainly uh, monumental, and yet you don't associate most national parks with cities. But yet even the, the National Park District is looking at lived-in landscapes and new definitions of national parks. Uh, so you'll see, uh, like recently, the Indiana Dunes becoming a national park. Los Angeles's efforts to green the Los Angeles River, I think these are great great initiatives. Central Park in New York, another famous a way to preserve open space, or Toronto and the Ontario Greenbelt, which sweeps behind 
the full city of Toronto all the way down to Hamilton, almost to Buffalo. And this great green belt is to preserve the watersheds, uh, farmlands, forests. I think it's a remarkable idea. And what do you think about the recent movement to make buildings themselves more friendly to nature and wildlife by installing glass that birds are less likely to collide with or creating eaves that swallows might nest in or vertical gardens on the sides of buildings? We tend to refer to this as rewilding in cities, and rewilding is is really any and all initiatives to find a better relationship between the built world of our cities and the nature. We haven't in the past done a very good job of being connected and supporting the natural systems. And I think our future has to be green. Otherwise, we may not have a future at all. The idea of greening rooftops is a fantastic way to not only insulate buildings and keep them cooler in the summer, but provide habitat. Many design firms are looking at advanced building materials like cross-laminated timber. Wood has much lower embodied energy than concrete or steel. So looking at urban buildings, and we think you can actually build high-rise buildings with cross-laminated timber. Really? So you'd have wooden skyscrapers? Or you could. A 60-story wooden building? I don't know if it would be 60 stories, but... 20? 20, mm-hmm. 25. Looking at buildings that require less concrete and less steel. Glass is an issue with birds. There's no question that, especially with cities that are in migration paths, that all glass buildings are really difficult. And Yet many architects have explored an idea of a fine tracery of other materials out in front of the glass that birds can sense so that they don't fly into the glass. Ideas like this need to find their way into building codes so that this becomes law as opposed to a design option. I love that idea of rewilding. It makes me realize that in order for something to be rewilded, it had to be dewilded in the first place. <laughs> and I wonder a little bit. I think it must have. I you know, for people living in the early part of the 20th century, it must have been a bit of a shock to realize how relatively fast the dewilding went. Well, we consider ourselves pioneers, and yet we destroyed the wilderness. We urbanized rapidly in the 1800s especially the Midwest. I think that the, you know, the reason we channelized our rivers was not just for industry. This was land that if they created a vertical wall on the river, they had more land to sell. The Midwest was a collection of very innovative cities figuring out how to produce steel and mine the ore mountains and move ore around and process that. And it's amazing what the Midwest cities did in a very short amount of time. It makes me wonder what we might accomplish in this century in a very short amount of time. Now, with technology being really in our favor, we have the ability to go back and restore what we took away. One of the other benefits of rewilding is to recognize the trends that are occurring and that we have to reverse these. We have to deliberately reverse these. 
some of these ideas have to advance beyond the scale of a city to not just the scale of a nation, but really the scale of the planet. Like, how do we rewild the planet? A few years back, I read that one of the side effects of the rapid urbanization had been that as people left the tropical rainforests, for example, that the tropical rainforests were coming back to a more natural condition. It's not going to replace the biodiversity that was lost. However, things grow very rapidly in uh, tropical environments, and there was a natural form of rewilding that was going on. And I just wondered, like, how much of that might be happening with the urbanization in North America? The open spaces, are they finding their way back to some form of rewilding on their own? The answer is yes. The Great Lakes are a good example of that, where so much of the Great Lakes was adjusted for heavy industry. And a lot of that industry is gone now. And so you have a lot of abandoned industrial sites, especially on Lake Erie around Cleveland. You see the natural systems coming back, taking it over. We worked for many years at the Southwark Steel Plant in yeah, South Chicago, Chicago which is a 600-acre piece of land uh, right on Lake Michigan that was a vital U.S. steel plant employing tens of thousands of people for many decades. And when they closed, they also removed all the buildings because I think there was a tax benefit to not have buildings on the land. So it's a completely level site, and most of it is slag, which is this byproduct of making steel. And when we first started working out there, it was like a white desert. The ground plane was just flat and white. And everyone's- White from the slag? The slag was this very oh. light color. And now you go down there, it's maybe 10 years later, 15 years later. It's a dense cottonwood forest. And that's only the first wave, like cottonwoods established themselves and now they're building a topsoil and other things are coming in. and. There are coyotes living there, and if we just left that alone, I think it would completely come back to something that maybe wasn't what it was before, but it's something that's altered by man, but still natural. What is your philosophy? Do you have any basic tenets that you live by? We do actually have tenants that we apply to almost all of our work. We being the architectural firm? The architectural firm at Skidmore, Owings & Merrill and the planning studios that we call the city design practice within SOM. If we can keep cities compact and build cities of short distances, then you're already on the right path because that enables you then, if you have a compact city to leave land for nature. So you can pull back from the waterways, you can pull back from the banks so that you can let your lowland water areas exist without encumbering them with development. We really look at uh, how nature can help make cities more efficient. So we put a lot of attention to the direction of winds and breezes, 
a sun orientation, that working with nature will definitely keep a city cooler in the summer and brighter and sunnier in the winter. There's so many different factors that go into it. I hadn't even thought about that idea of trying to know where the prevailing wind direction was. We work with a climatologist who helps us in quite a few of the Chinese projects. There is a city of Chengdu in western China we were working in that has very low flow wind, very mild winds, not even winds, breezes, but it gets very hot and humid. And their air quality is not great. And so he started looking at how to adjust building form. And he said, if we just lift these buildings off the street one or two levels, it allows this slow-moving breeze to move through at street level. So we started looking at a certain percentage of each block had buildings lifted up above the street so that you could connect the street level to, let's say, courtyards and walk through the blocks. And these slow-moving breezes actually flushed the toxins out of the air and cooled the city. That's an amazingly fresh and momentous idea. So is there someone out there now who's working, some thinker or an architect or artist that you're fascinated by, someone bringing bright new ideas? Young architects are treading through new frontiers and establishing sort of a new value system. The idea of health in urban environments is being discussed. Certainly uh, social justice, gender equity, access to equal access to public transportation is all influencing urban planning and influencing how buildings are being designed. Scott Duncan, who is a young design partner within Skidmore, and Merrill, is very interested in accessing nature. And there are these theories that uh, when one walks through nature, it's considered unapplied attention, that you're attentive to the environment, but you're not exhausted at the end of your walk. You're not stressed or mentally exhausted. But during your workday, you have an applied attention where you're deliberately making yourself be attentive to the situation for eight hours or nine hours, and then you go home and you're exhausted, you're tired. But you're not tired, mentally tired after an eight-hour experience with nature. So having more interaction with nature in the workplace is a way to keep people uh, less uh, stressed or less tired, uh, more refreshed. This theory can find itself into architectural design in many different ways and bringing gardens in to cities or designing buildings that braid together multiple courtyards and landscapes, vertical gardens. So this idea of blending natural systems and architecture together, I think is just really beginning. And it sounds like it would be absolutely beautiful. Do you have any hobbies that you care about and spend time on? I am a avid watercolorist. I usually watercolor every day. In a way, it was always, the watercoloring was always connected to urban planning for me. And it started collaborating with a lot of urban planners in San Francisco that would formally get together on Sundays and watercolor. And I would go out with these guys and they would all do beautiful watercolors and I would do these terrible little watercolors, but they would 
sit in some part of the city and they were all planners. And so you would, you knew why you were there. You were there because there was architecture and there was landscape that was forming some kind of important public place. Do you have any advice that you would give to a young person who's just starting out in their career and they're moving into a city, perhaps for the first time, they're moving into a big metropolis? What advice do you have for that young city dweller and how do they contribute to the brilliant life of a city? That's a wonderful question. And I think it's incredible time for young people that are interested in urban environments and urban studies not just from a design side, but so many other professions that connect with urban environments, certainly the arts and culture, with an interest in re-urbanization of our cities, which when I was younger, that was not happening. People were leaving cities. Now people are attracted to cities because of the vibrant scene, the food scene, the culture scene, the social scenes. It's a fun place to be that how you continue to make cities more livable, more accessible, more affordable, and certainly how to make them more just and more equal, that we don't ignore poor neighborhoods that really need support and investment. It's a wonderful time, actually. Buckminster Fuller has this wonderful quote where he says, how big can we think? And Carl Sandburg has that wonderful quote, nothing happens unless first we dream. This is the kind of thinking you need with natural systems and landscape and finding ways forward that get us in balance with nature. Nature thinks big, but we've actually thought very small. We have to figure out ways to reconnect. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. This is Jill Riddell, and I hope this conversation with Phil Inquist inspires you to view your own home city as a place rife with opportunities to connect with nature. Next week, we'll be talking with photographer Jen Lee, who contemplates and captures landscape. There's a lot of unexpected, unknown dramas that happen. Until then, enjoy your unapplied attention and open soft-bottom streams. The Shape of the World is about nature and people and the world we share. It's a production of the Office of Modern Composition, a business that creates compositions and fosters composers. If you have a story to tell, the Office of Modern Composition can help. They can go all DIY and teach you how to write and produce a story yourself, or they'll do the whole thing for you. Either way, you can end up with a permanent archival piece that presents your ideas and experiences. The Shape of the World is produced in the vital, vigorous, and beautiful metropolis of Chicago in the prairie state of Illinois. You can find The Shape of the World on Instagram and on the website shapeoftheworldshow.com. Shape of the World's producer is Ari Mejia. The theme music is composed and performed by Brad Wood. Thank you to today's guest, Phil Inquist. <laughs>